Hello, everyone. My name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the president and chief analyst of KGK and Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center for your business, use the link in the show notes to connect with me. One of the first questions I had for you was you went from being a physician to being a physician group leader. Yeah. I was curious, what were the, you know, the personal skill sets or circumstances that pushed you in that direction? Well, it was actually sort of an accident. Okay. You have to go back to 1990. I was in this group in Atlanta and our medical director was a colonel in the Army Reserve. And when the first Gulf War started, he got called to Fort Benning in South Georgia to relieve the active duty people going overseas. And there was a need really to divide up his job because we knew his absence was going to be temporary. And he went around to the a lot of the administrative leadership and I presume the board of the group. I was, you know, still kind of new and said, well, here are the, the duties we need to distribute who do you think would be good at handling utilization management? Because we had delegated utilization management from HMO, uh, which was kind of unusual for that time, but we did. And my name floated up. And I think my sole qualification was that I was the first person who joined the group who had participated in an HMO previously and kind of understood how it worked. And I was always pretty cooperative and team-like with the UM nurses when they would approach me, you know, about an inpatient or so on. So yeah, I said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I discovered somewhat to my surprise that I liked it. That's, it used to be anyway, a fairly common portal of entry into physician leadership. And it's frankly, somewhat thankless job, but I got pretty good at it. And again, I was surprised. I'd never really thought much about uh, doing anything in leadership, but I could see there was a potential for me to add value in other areas. So I agreed to do it. And when this gentleman came back from his uh, duty as a reservist, he asked me if I would stay on and retain that role, which I agreed to do. And to be honest, I was probably better at it than he was. His his skill set was elsewhere. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's how it started. And it became an associate medical director role within the group that it fluctuated in size over time. At its peak, it was at about 80 physicians and other uh, professionals. I don't care for the word provider, by the way, so you'll hear me use the word professional. <laughs> That's <laughs> perfectly fine. Yeah. So that's how that started. And then the rest is sort of history. And if you'd like, I can get into more of that. Well, I'm curious about one thing. You say you, you enjoyed it somewhat surprisingly. I'm curious why somewhat surprisingly. I guess I had just never thought about a role of that sort. You know, fairly vocal and outspoken guys. So in, you know, department meetings and committees, I would talk a lot and things like that. But I just had never really thought much about uh, taking it further. When you're in medical school and residency, it's just not the first thing that comes to mind, particularly um, when I trained in school in the late 70s and residency in the early 80s. Things were just different then. Independent practice was still the norm and so on. Mm -hmm. And Meridian was about 80 
positions at that point? At its peak, I think. This is getting to be a fading memory. But. Sure. Yeah. You know, I saw you went to Wellborn Clinic. Yeah. And were chief medical officer there. And thereafter went to Elmhurst Clinic. How did you come into the role at Elmhurst Clinic? Well, when I was at Wellburn, we were going up on an electronic medical record at roughly the same time as Elmhurst. And I mean, this was in like 2003, 2004. So I had met some of Elmhurst's people at trainings and had learned a bit about the place. And we ultimately sold Wellburn to a local health system. And at that time, uh, in mid-2008, it was really best for me to move on. I was fully in support of the transaction and worked actively to make it happen, but I knew it probably was going to lead to me needing to uh, seek other employment. That's a you know a long story, but it was a cordial process. And at the time, uh, the Elmhurst Clinic CEO uh, was getting ready to retire. It was He'd been with the clinic 37 years, the last 11 as CEO, so it was he felt it was time, and uh, one thing led to another. Another, I got the job. It was a wonderful experience. I've been, you know, I, I feel lucky to have had three major leadership positions in my career, each one exceeding expectations, and you know, in their own way, both enjoyable and challenging. Mm-hmm. What did Elmhurst Clinic look like when you started there? And maybe give us a little bit of color in terms of how it evolved over the years. Yeah, when I got there, I found a group of about seventy-four. It was almost entirely physicians. There were very nurse practitioners and no physician assistants. But I found a group of physicians who were really committed to their patients and to each other. And they actually got along pretty well and genuinely liked each other, something you don't see in all medical groups. Yeah, sure. I knew I'd inherited something great. But I also observed that while they were collegial, there was still a lot of what, and I did not coin this term, but a lot of what we sometimes call practicing alone together. (laughs) help each other and so on. But there was a lot more opportunity for sharing patients and cases of urgent care and teamwork and and so on. I also liked the relationship between the Elmhurst Clinic and Elmhurst Memorial Hospital at that time, which for Chicagoland was pretty unique. We had, and they still have actually, a long-term professional services arrangement with the hospital that and I can get into more detail if you like, but it tied our success to that of the hospital and vice versa, but it stopped short of full employment. So I thought that it was kind of a sweet spot for us. And there is and likely always will be a little bit of tension in that relationship, but also that breeds a lot of creativity because we got things to the point where everybody really wants the same thing. Over time, I would say, well, the practice grew during my tenure to about 130 professionals, and there were some departures and retirements and so on. So recruiting was always kind of a a big thing. And I looked for people who would fit well with the culture. I kind of figured that was my job and that the people I were, whatever part of the practice I was recruiting to add to, then it was really up to them to tell me if they were comfortable with a physician or other professional's knowledge of medicine and their attitude and so on. We really evolved into a very patient-centered organization. Uh, In fact, we had a mantra, patients first, organization second, individual third, which is somewhat counter to that practicing alone together uh, rubric. And we were able to, I think, be very successful in terms of increasing our popularity with patients, growing the practice in an extremely competitive environment, 
and providing a place that people really wanted to work. We had very, very little voluntary turnover and very little involuntary turnover. So most of the people who were there when I started are still there, except for, you know, again, a couple of um, age appropriate retirements or, you know, for whatever personal circumstances took them out of town or whatever. So what I liked about it was the ability to bring young physicians along. That was, I found that very satisfying because I could see myself from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. I also enjoyed, you know, fostering a real sense of teamwork and also uh, mentoring leaders under me, you know, in either committee chair roles or department leadership roles, or we were in a number of locations of various sizes. So uh, some of them were small and operated not really on their own because we all approach things the same way, but the, the hyper-local leadership, I guess I'll call it. So I had a chance to work with some of those people and help them, you know, grow some communication skills, assertiveness, and so on. So I found that very satisfying. And, you know, the group's done well. Yeah. You mentioned the organization evolved into a patient-centric organization. Yeah. It's not that it wasn't previously. It's just that that really became our mantra. And to some extent, Elmhurst Hospital, and particularly following the merger with Edward Hospital into the system that's now called Edward Elmhurst Health, that was something that was articulated very well at both institutions, and it was only strengthened when they came together. Mm -hmm. And so when that philosophy becomes part of your daily language, it ends up kind of suffusing everything you talk about. And that's really what you have to do to succeed these days. You know, the public has gotten much more sophisticated. They're much more apt to ask questions or, you know, we physicians aren't worshipped any longer. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, never should have been. But the nature of the doctor-patient relationship has evolved over the decades I've been in, in the game, and I think for the better. Yeah. From a business standpoint, creating a sense of purpose, in this case, being patient-centric is key. But can you talk about, again, from a business standpoint, the key success factors for a physician group? Well, one of the things that's really important to do these days is as much as you can be evidence-based and to reduce unnecessary variation. For example, you know, back in Indiana, we had people who, this was before electronic records, but, you know, Dr. X wanted his charts organized this way. Dr. Y wanted his charts organized that way. And Dr. Z wanted her charts organized yet a third way. And you can't operate a busy organization like that, particularly because that's sort of catering to individual quirks that don't really accomplish anything other than satisfy, you know, somebody's particular itch. Um, it's error prone and it's extremely expensive. So extinguishing variation that isn't based on variation in patients is really, really key because that way you have a way you do certain things. So for instance, if you have a set of things that you always want to do for diabetics, or if you have, you know, if you can standardize a colonoscopy prep, for the, there's a certain dermatologic medications that you need to manage with blood tests. I was in a situation in Indiana where the three dermatologists wanted to do it three different ways. And it became, you know, kind of a push and pull among them. And again, honoring more the old, old values of autonomy and individual heroism that many of us were trained in 
rather than what's the best way to do this so that we can accomplish the task we need to accomplish. And it also allows you to interchange staff from location to location if you need to for some reason, because you do things the same way. And it can be as simple as, okay, say in family medicine or internal medicine, or perhaps all of primary care, we're going to put these supplies in this drawer and these supplies in the drawer underneath it. We're not going to do it one way for you, one way for you, and one way for you. Again, you can you know, clear away a lot of, of physical clutter and process clutter that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I suspect in the work you do, you spend some of your time doing that as well. So to the extent that we were able to do that, it made us a better organization. It was more efficient to run. And, you know, it allowed us to focus more on what patients needed as opposed to, you know, catering to people. Yeah. One of the big questions for me and potentially one of the challenges for you in leading Elmhurst Clinic was bringing some of those, I would call them common practices that exist in the business world in large to medicine, to practice management. Yeah. So many of us, particularly people my age, thought we were going to be an independent solo or small group practice. And in those settings, it's you know much easier to have your way, my way, and somebody else's way. But you can't in a group the size of Elmhurst Clinic, the, the thing would grind to a halt. So how you do that is over time. The first thing, particularly, I was new there. I mean, they didn't know me. I didn't know them, other than the passing familiarity from the interview process. The first thing you have to do is establish trust. And you do that one relationship at a time. You have to meet everybody, hear what it is. And, and that was the first thing I did. I sat down with everybody, or I think almost everybody. And I made a lot of notes about what brought you here? Why do you stay here? What do you th- see as the biggest challenges? What do you, th- what do you think are the, the, the greatest strengths of the organization? And so I was able to put together a picture of things for myself that allowed me to, and this was over months when I first started, to have people be comfortable with me and know that I would listen to them and always tell them the truth, whether it was good news or not. Right. So once you establish that sort of credibility, which, by the way, you have to keep doing, partly because you just have to keep doing it and partly because there are, you know, there are always new people coming in and, and so on. And particularly consequent to something like a merger of two health systems, then you have another culture you have to adapt to or, you know, attempt to change to a limited extent if that's if that seems best. So being able to communicate very well, both orally and in writing and standing up in front of a group is, is really key because you have to show that you're on mission, on vision, and you are entirely trustworthy and honest all the time. As I used to tell, you know, leaders and less less experienced leaders to say, you get to lie exactly once and you shouldn't even do that <laughs> because <laughs> if you do that, you're done. You, you know, you might as well, uh, might as well just step away. So building those relationships was key so that when it came time to, and you know, here's an example in one of our larger departments, we had, it was probably a one or two inch thick book of people's scheduling preferences. So, you know, I want to do this many physical exams a day. I want to see this many new patients a week. I don't want these two types of appointments back to back. And I don't do this procedure, that procedure, the next procedure. Some of that's okay. If there's something you don't do, well, don't put it on the doc schedule. That's relatively easy. Well, the most ridiculous one I ever heard, and this was not at Elmhurst, this was many years ago in Atlanta's, don't give me two back pains in a row after 3 p.m. on Thursdays. I swear to God, that is that was an actual 
scheduling demand from the physician. And now multiply that sort of specificity by 14 or 15 people. It will take somebody on the phone 15 minutes to make an appointment because they got to go you know, read through everything and then find an appointment slot. And then what happens is the physician then complains, well, why do I have empty appointments? And I say, because your rules are so screwy that we can't arrange things in a way. What you need to do is trust the people who do the schedule to understand that you have two types of appointments, long and short. Here's what goes on a long one. Here's what goes in a short one. And let's try to have as few other individual variables as possible beyond that. That requires physicians to let go of a lot of control to people who their expertise is in talking to patients on the phone or, you know, by email and, and getting them scheduled. But every time we got somebody to do it, ultimately they thanked us. And so that becomes Rolling Stone going down the hill, gathering moss. The more people say, hey, you know what, the so-called open schedule, it really works better for me. My appointments are filled. I'm you know, I'm not getting jammed up with two things that really shouldn't be back to back. You've got the longs and the shorts straight, and I'm much happier now. Now, it takes a long time to convince some people, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. But that's an example of the sort of thing that when you get it working, it's, it's very gratifying because it helps everybody wins. And they usually end, frankly, making more money because their schedule is running more smoothly. They can maybe add on a patient or two a day, which sounds like a dripping faucet. But over time, that's, that's you know, meaningful from a revenue standpoint. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was that, you know, that's one of the challenging parts of running a clinic is balancing those two agendas, the, the medical objective and the business operational objective. And things like this, scheduling, are seemingly trivial, but they have substantial effect on the performance of the business, right? Yeah, it's not trivial at all. It's actually the front door to the organization. It's most people's first contact with the medical practice is, okay, let's call and make an appointment and or do it online if, if that's how you're doing it now. And what that experience goes like often now defines whether somebody will stay with you or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's too hard to get to you, they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. You described it, at least your entry into the organization was this exercise in meeting people, building trust, listening to them. Yeah. How much of what you looked to improve and evolve in the business was driven by that versus, say, by data, more concrete thing? The data is a tool that you use to implement change. I mean, the other thing that we haven't talked about is there are a tremendous number of external forces that come to bear on medical practices now. Some of it is, you know, national regulatory. I mean, you really can't do a lot about that. You have to kind of roll with it. But some of it was self-imposed. For instance, wanted to talk about what are some of the more challenging things we had to do. We at one point came under the, our facilities, well, the, a little hard to explain quickly, but the physician practice remained a separate entity, but the facilities for reimbursement purposes, particularly under Medicare, became part of the hospital. And what that did was it brought the facil- those facilities, by which I mean an ambulatory office, really, under the hospital's Joint Commission regulations and requirements. Well, that was not something that we were used to. And one of the things, frankly, I wish I had done better was prepare us more f- for making that transition because we got involved with it was everything from infection control to how we clean the rooms to 
you know, who entered orders, you know, closing loops on referrals, physical safety in the office, and really adopting the, the hospital's high reliability service in the ambulatory setting. Now, not we had to deal with some round pegs and square holes, but there were a lot of back-end business processes that you know, we thought were set up correctly that really weren't. And it was probably the most difficult time I faced in the organization because the decision to do this wasn't entirely under my control because the facilities had always belonged to the, the health system. You know, I was still the leader and I felt that, you know, I owned communicating that, yeah, this is going to be okay. We can do it. And it turned out we could. It was just a lot more involved than I thought it was going to be. So that really, I think, taxed the trust and communication and so on. Now, I will say that at the back end of that, it made us better in a lot of ways. It was somewhat more inconvenient for patients, and uh, some of them, depending on their insurance, was a little more challenging financially for them. But we became much more scrupulous about infection control, about you know verifying people's identities. You may have noticed if you go in, you get asked your name and your birth date 15 different times by uh, different people. We started implementing stuff like that, and there were potential errors that may not have really resulted in harm, but we caught them and we tried to celebrate those things so that I think the organization is much more disciplined and safer and the cleanliness is monitored. It's it's just a better place to get care. You know, we all chafed at some of this a bit, but overall, I think it was painful, but positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was this what one of the challenges that emerged from the merger with Edwards? No, no, this actually predated Edward. Okay. This was something that the senior leadership at Elmhurst wanted to do, again, partly because there were some reimbursement advantages to it. Also, because some of the individuality that we were struggling with you know, had to be extinguished in order to come into regulatory compliance. So it helped us with risk. It helped us with cost management, helped us with safety. One of the other things you mentioned as a key success factor was being more evidence-based. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Well, you would be surprised at the amount of stuff that physicians and hospitals and other entities that provide healthcare do. There aren't a million medical studies that support every single move that we make. So where we can, we try to respect clinical guidelines that are either driven by our professional societies, certainly you know, in the hospital, they have goals for, you know, reducing or infection rates in various settings. And there is pretty solid evidence behind those sorts of things. So where we can, we try to implement that and, you know, base what we do on best science available, which of course changes over time as we're seeing aptly demonstrated with the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. So did that translate into more usage of diagnostics? And is that in line with this idea of Reduced individuality? No. And when I say reduced individuality, I guess I prefer the term reduced variation. Sure. Okay. You know, unless it's variation that helps a patient in some manner. For instance, going back to appointments for a moment, our physicians now have an opportunity to say, look, I don't care what, you know, Mr. So-and-so is coming in. He always needs a long appointment because he's really complicated and he likes to talk. So, you know, that is a patient-centered variation that helps. A variation that doesn't help is, you know, well, I don't want to do pap smears after 4 p.m. Well, you know, why? <laughs> Just because you don't want to. Where I would say we were tried to be more uniform was in the area of process. 
so that we started screening people at annual visits and even sometimes on the phone. There are some basic screeners you can use for depression. It's a, a way underdiagnosed problem. And we set up a relationship with Linden Oaks Behavioral Hospital. It's the a mental health hospital of the Edward Elmer system, where if we detected somebody who was really in trouble, we can make a fairly rapid connection to someone who could assess them and decide what level of care they needed fairly quickly. You know, we were sensitive, as everyone is, to the twin epidemics of opioid abuse and suicide. And, you know, that both have been exaggerated in the COVID era. So being able to catch people, you know, in more of a contemplative phase than, you know, when they're ready to act, obviously, is far preferable. By systemizing screeners of that sort by saying, these are the things we will always make sure we pay attention to when we're treating diabetics and here are the, you know, the goal lab parameters we're going to set. That is, in the past, used to be criticized as cookbook or overly oppressive or antithetical to physicians' heroism and autonomy, but it's better for patients. And particularly with physicians being trained now, they're far more accustomed to working in this manner. And I think, frankly, right now, it's a pretty exciting time to be a physician and to be coming into the field because of all the advantages, not just in technology, but in process improvement that are available now. Obviously, you know, COVID has sort of upended everything, but I don't think the epidemic is, pandemic is the only reason med school applications are on the rise. Yeah, well, certainly. I wonder, though, from an outsider's perspective, it's creating a level of complexity that is tremendous, right? And being on the end of the individual and a leader in the organization having to adopt these things, I guess I'm curious to what extent can you continue to scale the complexity of some of these procedural things versus relying on, yes, knowledge workers, right? People who are expert at their craft. Well, it is a complex field, but remember when you trying to do things your way, my way, and someone else's way, you're just pushing the complexity onto somebody else, you know, sort of has to cope with the lack of uniformity. By no means does everybody practice the same way or schedule the same way, but they make uniform what makes sense to make uniform. And that actually is, it's a way of attacking complexity. And what it does is it reduces errors. It reduces errors in scheduling and it can reduce errors in care. Mm Mm-hmm. When you think about what it took to get from 70 some odd professionals to 130, what were, in addition to ferreting out variation, what were some of the other challenges of growing a a group to that level? Well, the most important thing I think is finding people who are going to work in the culture very well. So when, while the way things were set up, the final decision whether to hire was mine. I relied heavily and think rarely disagreed with input from those who would be the direct colleagues. So I would want to know things like, you know, how did you get interested in medicine? What is it that you wanted to do? Okay, great. What is it about a multi-specialty environment that appeals to you? You know, why does that seem like a better thing for you? And some people had answers and some didn't. And I would also ask if you had, you know, take a blank sheet of paper and sketch out to me, what's your ideal practice look like? Uh, Down to, you know, how many hours a week do you want to work? You know, do you want to do hospital care? Do you want to rely on hospitalists? And 
through those sorts of um, behavioral probing, you can develop a pretty good idea of what working with someone will be like and how likely they are to be enthused about improving the processes of care so that everyone is better served. You know, when you detect, I can give you a couple of examples. I once, this was not in Elmhurst, but I once asked that question of somebody in a medical specialty and said, so why would you like to join this multi-specialty group? And his answer, which I'm sure he didn't think about, but it just came out was, I think it'd be a good place to start. Well, that was the end. <laughs> that was the end. <laughs> You know, or the worst example was the guy who said, you know, I can work anywhere. Just, just tell me what you're going to pay me. I mean, it was literally what, and I said, well, you know, this guy doesn't even, I don't even know if he really wants to be a doctor. <laughs> but, so, uh, I mean, those are two very extreme examples. Usually what we would hear is things that, well, I like being able to have colleagues to bounce things off, uh, particularly since, you know, I'm new, I'm just coming out of training. I like the idea of having multi-specialties under one virtual roof with a common medical record where we can communicate very easily. I don't want to have to start my own practice, which is people still do it, but it's extremely daunting these days. And we did not use that as a any sort of a, a litmus test because it's so uncommon, particularly in an urban and semi-urban environment like we're in. Mm-hmm. So the way to have a stable group is to make sure you hire the right people in the first place who have the they seem to be going into medicine for the right reasons. They are group-oriented, they're collaborative, and really like a team culture. You know, the ones who didn't, we either chose not to work with or they went somewhere else. Yeah. Did people ever turn into, I realized that a moment ago you said uh, the retention was high, turnover was quite low. Yeah. Was there ever a point where people became a challenge? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most of that you can work with because I've always felt, and I did not coin this turn of phrase either, but physicians are very, very decent, but imperfect people like everyone else. And I include myself. And you just have to approach people respectfully, but also with the end in mind saying, so here's either a behavior or a practice habit we have observed. You know, this is, you know, we kind of all agreed is the way we should do things. Let's talk about why there's a gap and how do we overcome it, you know? And that's, I think, treating professionals with the respect they deserve, but also making clear that as a group, we had certain expectations of people and that it almost always worked out. Uh, We did have some involuntary separations and a few where I was able to sort of help people see that it was either time to retire or they should, um, you know, they might be happier somewhere else. Not something I particularly enjoy was pretty good at it, as it turned out. I found it personally very difficult, and it should be, because it's not a a change you ever want to make lightly. And it's not like somebody who who works in a limited job where you can easily take them out and put someone else in, and the job keeps getting done. Even people who are difficult in some sense, however you want to define that, either they may not fit in the culture, they don't get along with staff, or you know whatever the issue might be. Despite that, they generally have significant followings of happy patients. And when you displace a physician or another professional, you leave a whole bunch of patients that you now have to do something with. And some of them will leave, but you have to work really hard to retain them. And uh, you usually can't explain what happened. (laughs) And very difficult, but that's, uh, I'll put it this way. My predecessor on the way out said to me, 
this is a really, really fun job. It just isn't fun all the time. And <laughs> that was a not fun all the time part. And it wasn't, didn't happen very often. But uh, what I finally learned after a few of these is that, you know what, we're better off. And in fact, a couple of these people kind of maintained uh, relationships with me, just, you know, I'd bump into them periodically and it was, they, you know, they realized that it was probably better for them too. So mm-hmm. not the sort of gratification you want, but <laughs> sometimes it's what happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. On the way to getting, you know, growing the clinic twofold approximately, were there points at which the, the organization got stuck? Yeah, but it wasn't not really because of growth as so much as when you add people, you need time for the practices to fill in. But there were some other things that I think held us back that once addressed led to further growth. And let me give you an example. When I came, it was a team of six hospitalists. And I think most people know what a hospitalist is by now, but for any listeners who don't, it's a physician generally a general internist, some family physicians, some pediatricians who practice exclusively in the hospital. Other outpatient-only physicians will send in their admissions and the hospitals take care of them. Well, we had a team of six of them, and it became obvious over time that we needed to much better align them with the hospital's goals, you know, as well as the patient care they were doing. And the hospital has a lot of regulatory needs to satisfy. They have quality goals and metrics they need to meet for uh, governmental and other reimbursement. And they were getting paid per shift. And they were great people. They worked hard, but there was no personal stake for them in you know, getting some of these other things done. So they were the first group that we moved into what's commonly called a value-based compensation method, where some of their pay got held back and tied to their achieving, you know, certain readmission rate. Some of the goals were tied to how they blood usage, service, you know, patient service parameters, and a couple of other quality metrics that were easily measured and well within their control. That was a big culture change, and it was really controversial. Uh, There were a lot of long, uh, sometimes unpleasant meetings about it. But once we did it, it really brought the team together, particularly once I put a new leader in for that team. And when I left, it was fifteen team of 15 docs on its way to becoming 17. Uh, They were busier. They were happier. The hospital was much happier with them. The patients were getting good care, and they're all making more money. Um, and if you'd ask any of them at the end of it, would they want to go back? I think they would all tell you no. You know, it's not perfect. There are problems with it, but it gave us an opportunity to look at what other things could they be doing other than being passive recipients of admissions. So, for instance, they a couple of them were asked, and well, we asked for volunteers, if you will, to we'd like you to become develop some expertise at opioid management and in you know, helping people reduce their use of opioids. So a couple of them pursued that. Another one or two pursued expertise in management of medical issues that come up in labor and delivery, because that was sort of an area that was needed a little more support. So some of them did that. And part of it was if you were willing to do that, we would replace some or all of your bonus credit that you had otherwise had to earn because you were helping yourself, you were helping patients, you were helping the hospital. And uh, the team, I think, probably cares for more than half the patients in the hospital right now. I'm not sure. I've been been gone a year. (laughs) But that was an example of a real cultural and philosophical struggle we went through that led to something that turned out to be really good. And that team 
had very low turnover. And if you look around this city or other cities, hospitalist teams turn over a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they sure do. Whether it's value-based compensation or just better alignment of incentives at the doctor level to the clinic level or or to the uh, organization's objectives, was that also a change that you made organization-wide? We were getting there at the time that I retired, and I one of the things I was a little bit sorry about was I wasn't going to be there to bring that one home, but I was confident that the gentleman who replaced me would be able to do so. They're still working on it. Uh, this process really got waylaid by COVID. You know, I must say that what I am very gratified about is that the organization I left behind was one that has adapted brilliantly to the new demands of, you know, overnight becoming telemedicine experts, completely reorganizing priorities in the way the hospital is staffed and a whole bunch of other things. I'm not even familiar with all the details, but I have had feedback both from physicians in the group and from, you know, hospital uh, leadership that clinic has been very, very helpful in it and adapted well. And I'm sure that's true over at Edward as well. But, you know, having an organization that could see a sudden and brutally different vision of the future, to me, is one that is healthy. And while, you know, I kind of miss some of the action and the people and, and I wish I were there helping. On the other hand, it's very nice to know that I left behind an, an organization that could uh, remain resilient under the current circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the challenges of a mid-sized group as opposed to one that's even larger or one that's smaller, right? Being in the middle can sometimes be the toughest spot. Yeah, because you don't have a bench or at least as, as deep a bench as you might. So that if you have a specialty with three doctors and two of them get COVID, that's a real, real stressor. Or uh, it doesn't even take COVID. One of them, we had a scenario during my tenure where there was, you know, one guy was on vacation in Italy, another one uh, suffered an injury, severe injury to his hand and couldn't operate for a while. So there's one poor guy there sort of left by himself. Now that we were able to arrange some other coverage for him. So, you know, depth can be a problem. One thing I will tell you that is going on right now is that the Edward Elmer's health system has a variety of relationships with both employed and contracted entities like ours. And one of the things we were working on was in figuring out how we could all collaborate better together and, you know, create a virtual physician organization of five to 600 people, even if we to some extent, remained in our own silos. That was part of the evolution that we were working on. And what that was ultimately going to lead to, what the model would look like, I don't think any of us knew. But what was really nice was that all of us, both medical professional side of things and the hospital side, were very open to whatever that might be, as long as we focus on certain common goals, that we would be able to you know, provide patients the care they needed when and where they needed it, that, you know, our processes would be fairly uniform across the organization. So for the reasons, you know, explained earlier, and that people had a similar experience, regardless of whatever door or window they entity through. I imagine that would raise the bar even higher, quite a bit higher, actually, for standardization. Yeah. Again, you try to take a bang for the buck approach to that. You know, where are you really going to most advantage yourself by trying to standardize and then devote your resources to doing that you know trying to catch you know every little thing i mean you you know if you want to use a band-aid that's this size and i want to use one that that size we're not going to waste a lot of time arguing about that right 
Right. Interesting concept. That's seemingly commonplace in some specialties in medicine, just to have a, a service organization of some sort behind it. Yeah. And then to some degree, everyone is, well, sometimes literally, but a free agent of sorts. Mm-hmm. Physician employment, of course, has become far more common uh, over the last decade than it was almost unheard of when I finished training. You know, you would actually go to work for a hospital and the hospitals weren't into employing physicians at that point. Now, that there have been a couple of waves of that. Some people have come in and come out. I think it's being done in a much smarter way and driven by more timely and reliable data this time around. So I think it's going to think it's going to stay. Plus, I came out of medical school with $11,000 of debt. I remember talking to one really gifted young female OBGYN physician in our group. Uh, she was married to an orthopedic surgeon. They were you know, starting their life and their practice together. And between them, mm-hmm. they owed over $800,000 in education debt. So, you know, it's a mortgage on a really nice house without having the house. And guess what? They still needed to live somewhere. Right. And, yeah. you know, they're great people. They're talented physicians. They're working hard and they're, you know, doing well financially. But again, the thought of having to put up, you know, what it takes to start from zero and knowing very little about the business side of things and put up a practice, it's just not feasible these days. So I would have to keep reminding myself that, you know, if a physician sounded to me a little too what's in it for me focused, I remember, okay, this person probably owes mid six figures in education debt. So we're going to try to work with that a little bit, (laughs) you know, help them be successful enough that they can, can manage their lives. Yeah. That's definitely a challenge involved in this. If you're going to be in this profession, how did you personally come to learn some of the non-medical things that go into leadership, even just beyond you know, the individual coaching and being able to relate as a physician yourself? I had a couple of good mentors, but I also recognized that leadership is a discipline and it is a set of skills that comes naturally to a few people and the rest of us can develop. And it's it's an academic field of study like, you know, gastroenterology or brain surgery. <laughs> and while all physicians are leaders to some degree in that, you know, the clinical, they're usually operating a clinical team. It doesn't mean that they're in any way, shape or form paired to operate organizations. And so you learn a lot by making mistakes. Sure. But I've been in a member of what's now called the American Association for Physician Leadership for, gosh, since the mid-90s. Uh, they have a certificate program completed. I led to a master's degree at um, in medical management. Uh, there are a few of them in the country. Mine's from Carnegie Mellon. And that kind of thing is helpful as long as you put it into practice. Right. I still remember a guy I reported to very early in my leadership career who every time I brought him a problem, he would say to me, well, what do you think we should do? Or what's your recommendation? So I stopped bringing him problems. I started bringing him recommendations (laughs) because Mm -hmm. what he was saying to me is, I trust you to make this decision. That's okay. Wait a second. I can treat uh, heart failure and high blood pressure, but now he wants me to decide, you know, do we need to hire somebody into this role? How can we better reduce our lengths of stay? You know, what are we going to model how we take care of this type of patient? And so once you start kind of a, a systems thinking approach, it becomes a little easier. 
but there's formal training for them. Some people just find it isn't for them. And it isn't for everybody. And it doesn't have to be, nor should it be. You need great, hardworking physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses and staff and people who that's where they get their energy. That's what really drives them. And then back to the trust part, they have to know that they can rely on you to look out for their best interest to some degree, but also to make sure that really that they're working in a system of care that that does what it says it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. This idea of systems thinking is one that you mentioned to me before. I believe the phrase you used was everything affects everything. Yes. And I think that is the hardest part of operating a business to grasp. And you can't really learn from a textbook or even from case study. How did you come to even conceptualize this? Because you're the first person actually who's verbalized it in quite that way. Well, some of it was from experience and probably doing a few dumb things myself. But my background actually originally, I was an astrophysics major in college. So mm -hmm. I'm sort of used to thinking, uh, boy, you want to talk about thinking broadly. <laughs> there's that. And there's a flip side to it, by the way, because when I've had 360 reviews and other sorts of feedback, it's not really negative. But, you know, Donald, sometimes you think about things a little too hard and you're not going to make everybody happy. So make what you think is the best decision. And my response is, okay, so the guy who's working all by himself on the other side of the building, I don't have to worry about him and everybody else 24-7. I can actually just do what's right for the organization. And I've come to appreciate the value of being driven by a mission and a vision. And those are somewhat overused terms. And it's certainly something that can be done badly if it's just handed down from the C-suite and feeling of investment and buy-in from the people doing the actual work, it's meaningless. But if you involve them in crafting it, which is one of the other things I did kind of on the on the way out as we reformatted that. And so then you can point to those things and say, no, wait a second, these are our values. This is where we said we wanted to be in five years. And this is the, the set of strategies and goals we set to get us there. So I understand what you want to do, but it's not consonant with you know what we said we were going to do. So we can't do that. Then it becomes not an interpersonal contest. Then it becomes, this is about what we all at some level agreed we were going to do. And our activities and initiatives we undertake have to be consistent with that. Now, it doesn't mean mission and vision can't change over time. It's usually you know, worth a look every couple of years. But while it's in place, you have to always ask yourself, all right, is this consistent with our vision for ourselves, or is it not? And if it isn't, you have to have the courage to say no. Mm -hmm. Were there times where you had to do that? Not very often, frankly, because what we wanted to do was not quite mom and apple pie, but it was really about the, the values that define the organization in the first place, about doing things that are right for patients, you know, not getting bogged down in bureaucratic minutiae to the extent that it interfered with our ability to do that, making sure that, you know, the resources for people to do good work were available and that they had compatible staff supporting them. And through that, you know, we moved through most things pretty smoothly. And as I said, we had very little turnover. And there are plenty of other places in this area people could have gone. I mean, Chicago's home to five major medical centers, if not more, and, you know, a variety of community hospitals. Uh, there are opportunities for people to go elsewhere, and they typically didn't. Mm -hmm. So even when you ran into um, business changes like bringing the Elmhurst Clinic 
under the hospital designation where you have a lot more regulation and just operational constraints or requirements to be a little more broad. Yeah. The reimbursement benefits to that and money in the pocket of the clinic is more money to invest in medical quality of care, amongst other things. But, you know, did that scenario present a conflict of values of sorts? It did because it was perceived as a further impeding autonomy. But, and it did sometimes in a good way and sometimes not in a good way. There were some things that just didn't translate well from a hospital setting to an ambulatory setting that we still had to find a way to honor. And, you know, we worked through those things one at a time, and it was, you know, it might have been a little different in ENT than it was in pa- pediatrics or gastroenterology, but we did it. And again, it was a matter of communicating, putting patients first, and having physicians realize that, you know, I wanted what was best for them, but I also couldn't ignore if there was a practice underway that either had a safety risk or potential for an infection control problem or something of that nature. You know, we had to address it. And just because something had never happened doesn't mean it couldn't. I mean, we're typically dealing with fairly low volume adverse occurrences anyway. But it's the reason airplanes don't fall out of the sky all the time, because of a maniacal attention to detail and double checking and, you know, verifying communications and and things of that sort, and taking steps out of processes that don't really add value. Mm -hmm. So if you had to do it all over again, what might you have done differently? Well, I probably would have asked a lot more questions before tying us to the the hospital regulatory model. Not that we wouldn't have done it, but I think we would have been better prepared. We'd have understood our workflows better and and done a lot more preparation. The other thing is I would like to have seen us in retrospect. I was I think a little too resistant to entering the world of value-based compensation, not because I thought it was a terrible idea so much as I wanted to be sure we really had the data we needed to manage it well, and that we didn't entirely just let the insurance companies define quality for us, that we would be able to do some of that ourselves. And that is, excuse me, the path that the group is currently moving down. But we're a little behind the eight ball. And we did things like improve outcomes for diabetics and so on, and when we initially, you know, came into the merger with between Elmhurst and Edward, we were doing it about as well as Edward Medical Group, and they had a, a value-based comp plan. And I give them a lot of credit for going at it long before anybody even th- thought about it. And our argument was, well, look, we're doing about as well as these guys. Why, why do you want to rock this boat? Well, guess what? They kept getting better. And that gave us an opportunity to take advantage of physicians' inerrant belief that they're all above average. So <laughs> I'm going to change the lighting here for a moment. Sure. As a small sidebar, uh, that runs a little contrary to a, a little quip I've heard from doctors of, you know what they call the last, the, the person who's last in their class. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor. So, and they're great people out there. I've met and enjoyed knowing many of the Edward uh, employed physicians and became friendly with their leadership. And, you know, we would help each other quite a bit. But gosh, we couldn't let those guys get ahead of us. So uh, let's kind of drive some of this. Plus the opportunity to self-design such a program prior to having one one way or another imposed was obviously appealing. So I wish I'd started that process a bit sooner because I think the group would have adapted now having to contend with designing. That's one thing I wish we'd done. It worked I say it worked quite well with the hospitals. It was just a lot harder to spread out to the rest of the group because there was 
quite a bit of resistance to it. Yeah. It's got to the point where I could say to the, the docs, if you think you're going to see something different anywhere else, I invite you to go take a look because you won't. And then, of course, there have been an endless series of rumors that Edward Helmers were going to merge with some bigger entity. It has not happened. It may yet. It may not. I have no idea. But my message always was, if you think you know your current comp plan is going to survive anything like that, it just isn't. So it's kind of a combination of recognizing reality and some concerns about various potential future scenarios that might impose something that I think the docs would prefer to design themselves. So that's where I believe they are right now. But as I say, I like to stay in touch a little bit. But, you know, once you leave, you can't hover because the guy who replaced me, he's the leader and his job to carry forward. And I know he's doing it quite well. The way I look at, I had the opportunity here and almost to work with a really talented group of professionals as we implemented, you know, a lot of change. I think I developed a lot of trust and added to group cohesiveness. The opportunity to mentor new physicians and future leaders was extremely gratifying. And as I look back both over the last, you know, the 11 and a half years that I was there and then my two prior roles, you know, each one exceeded my expectations in different ways. Each one was challenging in different ways. But I look back over 37 years and I'm amazed at how fast it all went. But it's been a professional life well spent, and um, you know I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting is you could go out there and help mid-sized groups better manage themselves, but you've chosen to consistent with what you've shared here. You've chosen to go off and mentor up-and-coming physicians. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now? Well, actually, I was hoping to do both, but sure. The pandemic has obviously restricted a lot of uh, discretionary dollars for things like consulting. The one thing I am involved in right now is a, a program called Ascent Physician Leadership. It has kind of a mountain climbing theme to it, though I don't know how many of us involved with it have actually ever been up a real mountain. <laughs> and it's a product of the Interstate Postgraduate Medical Association, which is the oldest organization nobody's ever heard of, been around since the Mayo Brothers. It's based in Madison, Wisconsin, and they do a lot of CME programs and they do they certify other people's CME programs. And some people there pulled this together. And what I like about it is that it's very much grounded in peer group learning. It's grounded to some now, degree now in individual coaching. And it's really about the personal side of leadership and developing yourself as a leader. Most of the other leadership training for physicians ends up being about helping someone else be successful. It might be your practice. It might be, you know, some, you know, an ACO that you're part of. It might be a health system, but it's about helping something other than just you become big success. And what Zen focuses on a lot is the personal development side of leadership. A lot of stuff that, you know, I wish there'd been an Ascent program around to teach me. That's been really nice. The other thing that's been fun, well, fun is one word for it, but it was modeled on three in-person meetings a year in various locations around the country, and then monthly conference calls in between with a peer cohort. Well, that all got completely upended in uh, mid-March. And we've been busy continuing the program as best we can virtually while completely redesigning it for a relaunch sometime in the middle of next year, I think, in a way that we could return to the old model, but we could, we're also ready to pivot very quickly back to um, an all-virtual model if we need to. So that's been a lot of fun. 
I'm certainly making myself available to do other sort of consulting projects. I've had some conversations with other people and I'll keep doing that, keep networking and you know, if something comes to fruition, fine. If it doesn't, well, I'll just enjoy what I'm doing or, you know, play the clarinet more. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Donald, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your experience and your insight at Elmhurst Clinic. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. It's very kind of you to have me. Likewise. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's KGK. C-O-M-P-A-N-Y dot com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.